came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 20th of July 2018. Each fortnight we have a feature interview with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with me. It's mid-semester breakdown here in Australia and I've been working with an audio engineer to revamp all our recording equipment, software settings and preferences to ensure we have the best audio possible. What I thought were bandwidth issues degrading the quality of our last couple of episodes was actually my fault. It turns out that I had the gain and ineptitude dials set way beyond optimum. So in some previous episodes, the voices were irretrievably clipped. So now is a very good time to apologise to Dr. Natasha Dr. Kazmarek and Doc Hyde, knowing it won't happen again. Our very good friend Dr. Ian Musgrave is also on a mid-semester break from his toxicology and pharmacology lecturing duties at the University of Adelaide. He's escaped from Chile, South Australia, and is with his family up in sunny Queensland, having a much warmer time attending an astro camp. But with a bit of luck, we'll be able to contact him in Queensland and have our usual What's Up, Doc? segment. Also in this episode, an explanation of why the universe is overrated, just like that train song, Drops of Jupiter, that we're working on to produce a new intro to the show. It's a fabulous explanation by Professor Peter Coles, an astrophysicist and cosmologist from Cardiff University and Maynooth University in Ireland. And we'll finish up the show with our usual Astrophys News Roundup and a very interesting biography. And we're also pleased to announce in our next episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith, who's just about to release her new book, When Galaxies Collide. Our feature story for this episode, Why the Universe is Extremely Overrated, is from the blog at telescoper.wordpress.com by Dr. Peter Coles, who is Professor of Theoretical Astrophysics at Cardiff University in Wales and Professor of Theoretical Physics at Maynooth University in Ireland. His research is in the area of cosmology and the large-scale structure of the universe. His blog is named In the Dark, where he writes under the name Telescoper, covering a range of topics including astronomy, science, funding, opera, jazz, rugby and crosswords. And since 1999, it has been considered one of the greatest 
long-running physics blogs, and we wish him the best for his 20-year anniversary next year. Unfortunately, we were not able to find a time for a live interview, but he has kindly given permission to read you this fabulous blog entry of his, and I've made a couple of small edits just to make the reading more natural for audio format. Here goes. Professor Peter Coles has penned a response to the BBC television series Wonders of the Universe, in which he argues that the title of that program suggests that the universe is wonderful, or even, in a word which has cropped up in the series a few times, awesome. When you think about it, the universe is not really awesome at all. In fact, it's extremely overrated. Take the Andromeda Nebula M31, for example. We live in a similar object, the Milky Way, and of course it looks quite pretty on the surface, but when you look at it with a physicist's eye, such a galaxy is really not as great as it's cracked up to be, as he now explains. We live in a relatively crowded part of our galaxy on a small planet orbiting a fairly insignificant star called the Sun. Now, you've got me started on the Sun. I know it supplies the Earth with all its energy, but it does the job pretty badly, all things considered, because the sun only radiates a fraction of a milliwatt per kilogram. By comparison, a human being radiates more than one watt per kilogram. Pound for pound, that's more than a thousand times as much energy as a star. So, in reality, stars are bloated, wasteful, inefficient, and not even slightly awesome. They're only noticeable because they're big, and we all know that size shouldn't really matter. In short, stars are extremely overrated. But even in what purports to be an interesting neighbourhood of our galaxy, the nearest star is 4.5 light-years from the Sun. And to get that in perspective... Imagine the sun is the size of a golf ball. On the same scale, where is the nearest star? The answer to that will probably surprise you, as it does his students when he gives this example in lectures. The answer is, in fact, on the order of a thousand kilometres away. That's the distance from Cardiff to, say, Munich. For Australians, that's Wollongong to Brisbane. And in the US, it's a distance from LA to Denver, Colorado. What a dull landscape our galaxy possesses. So in between one little golf ball in Wales and another in Germany, there's nothing of any interest at all. Just a featureless, incomprehensible void, not worthy of a most perfunctory second thought. So galaxies aren't dazzlingly beautiful jewels of the heavens. They're flimsy, insubstantial things, more like the cheap rubbish that you can find on eBay. And what's worse, they're also full of a grubby mixture of soot and dust. Indeed, some are so filthy that you can hardly see any stars at all. Somebody needs to give the universe a good clean. I suppose you just can't get good help these days. A Physics Today piece caught Professor Cole's attention. Here's a quote from it. 
Star formation is stupendously inefficient. Take the Milky Way. Our galaxy contains about a billion solar masses of fresh gas available to form stars, and yet it produces only one solar mass of new stars per year. Hopeless. What a waste of space a galaxy is, as well as being oversized, vacuous and rather dirty. One is also pretty useless at making the very things it's supposed to be good at. What galaxies clearly need is some sort of productivity drive, or perhaps a complete redesign using more efficient technology. So, stars are overrated, and galaxies are overrated, but surely the universe as a whole is impressive. No. Think about the Big Bang. Well, I don't need to go on about it, because Professor Cole's already posted about it at tinyurl.com forward slash a loud bang, or lowercase. Suffice to say that the Big Bang wasn't anywhere near as big as you've been led to believe. The volume was between 115 and 120 decibels. Quite loud, but to be sure, many rock concerts are louder. To be honest, it's a bit of an anticlimax. If Professor Cole had been in charge and given sufficient funding, he would have put on something much more spectacular. In any case, the Big Bang happened a very long time ago. Since then, the universe has been expanding, the space between galaxies getting emptier and emptier, so there's now less than one atom per cubic metre, and cooling down to the point where its temperature is lower than three degrees above absolute zero. The universe is a cold, desolate and very empty place, lit by a few feeble stars and warmed only by the fading glow of the heat left over from when it was all so much younger and more exciting. Here and there, amid the cosmic void, a few galaxies are dotted about like cheap and rather tatty ornaments. It's as if we inhabit a shabby down-market retirement home, warmed only by the feeble radiation given off by a puny electric fire as we occupy ourselves as best we can until Armageddon comes. In my opinion, the universe would have worked out better if it had been entirely empty instead of being contaminated with such detritus. I agree with Tennessee Williams. Brick. While they say nature hates a vacuum, Big Daddy. Big Daddy. That's what they say, but sometimes I think that a vacuum is a hell of a lot better than some of the stuff that nature replaces it with. So no, the universe isn't wonderful. Not at all. In fact, it's basically a bit rubbish. Again, it's only superficially impressive because it's quite large. And it doesn't do to be impressed by things just because they're large. That would be vulgar. 
Digression. I just remembered a story about a loudmouthed Texan who owned a big ranch and who was visiting the English countryside on holiday. Chatting to locals in the village pub, he boasted that it took him several days to drive around his ranch. A local farmer replied, Yes, I used to have a car like that. Ultimately, however, the fact is that whatever we think about the universe and how badly constructed it is, we're stuck with it. Just like the trains, the government and the weather, there's nothing we can do about it, so we might as well grin and bear it. It's being so cheerful that helps keep me going. Thank you, Professor Peter Coles from Ireland. That was fabulous. So check out Dr. Peter Coles' blog at telescoper.wordpress.com. Okay, let's go now and see if we can get in touch with Ian Musgrave up in sunny Queensland. And we're in the same time zone for once. Here goes. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's things? All very good, thanks, Ian. Though your voice does sound very tinny, seeing it's coming out of the loudspeaker built into my mobile phone, but we'll just have to put up with that, I'm afraid, because given where you are at the moment, we can't use our normal Skype recording techniques. Now, where are you, Ian? Are you up in Brisbane still? I was up in Brisbane. I've now moved up to Cairns. You're up in Cairns. Fantastic. Yeah, unfortunately the sky has completely clouded over. We're away from the light pollution, so I don't get to see any of the brilliant night skies uh, that we've been enjoying for the past half week or so. Yeah, it's very nice up here at the moment. And it's very interesting seeing the tropical skies because they're quite different from uh, the skies we see down south. Well, not quite different, but they're, uh, they're different enough that you notice the northern constellations you can see and the fact that Scorpio is almost directly pointing up and down instead of being at an angle like we see it down south. Well, it's a fantastic time to be up there observing and doing astrophotography. What would you like to start with, Ian? Well, let's start with what we can see with the planets at the moment. Again, this week is an excellent opportunity to see all five of the bright, unaided eye visible planets in the sky at the moment. So, at the moment, Mercury is setting just as Mars is rising. If you've got a nice flat horizon, you can see Mercury above the horizon at the same time Mars is above the horizon. Above Mercury is Venus. Venus is intensely bright at the moment. Why don't you have all five unaided eye planets visible at the moment? But three of those planets are brighter than magnitude minus two, which means they're intensely bright. The three that are brightest, of course, is Venus, which is around about magnitude minus four. I have no doubt that in the coming weeks and months we'll be seeing reports of flares, oncoming aircraft, UFOs, <laughs> which are all basically Venus, which no one has paid attention to for the past year or so, and it's been in the morning skies. Venus has left behind the bright star Regulus, and its close approach was a, was a feature in our last talk. It's leaving it behind and now heading towards the bright star speaker. So uh, we can uh, watch that uh, occurring over the coming month. Mercury is beginning to head down towards the horizon at the moment. So this week is the last good week we will have for viewing Mercury. And after that, Mercury disappears into you know, conjunction with the Sun in the first week of August. 
Yep. Jupiter is well past opposition, but it's still beautiful and brilliant in uh, telescopes and shining brightly very close to Alpha Librae, otherwise known as Lupa Lubri, the brightest star in the constellation of Libra, and just above the head of the uh, Scorpion. And uh, then, of course, below the tail of the Scorpion, the direction of the centre of the galaxy, is our friend Saturn, which is also looking fantastic in telescopes at the moment, with the rings almost totally open. So Saturn is very obvious to the unaided eye, the brightest object below the tail of the Scorpion that is not bright red. Of course, further down in the undistinguished constellation of Capricornius, the water goat, is Mars. Now, the big thing for this week is the opposition of Mars, which occurs on July the 27th. At this time, Mars and the almost full moon are quite close to each other, so it's by some chance you are unable to recognise the brightest red object above the eastern horizon as Mars. It will be right next to the moon on the 27th. The moon is also close to Jupiter on the 21st and close to Saturn on the 25th. So that way you can use the moon to identify any of the bright objects in the sky that you're not completely sure of as being planets. As I mentioned, the 27th is when Mars is at opposition. This is when it's biggest and brightest as seen from Earth, when it's almost in a direct line between the Sun and Earth. So this year is uh, aphelic opposition, when Earth is just past aphelion, when it's first from the Sun, and Mars is at the perihelion, when it's closest to the Sun. So that means that Earth and Mars are much closer when, for example, if Earth is at perihelion and Mars is at aphelion. Yep. At this time, uh, Mars is going to be quite big in telescopes and quite bright from the point of view of telescopic observers. But even in binoculars, it'll still look like a bright red dot. But in a telescope, you'll see a very broad, distinct disk. The global dust storm is still raging, but it's beginning to die down and you're beginning to see features on Mars and you can see the polar caps and occasionally some of the larger markings on Mars. Now this is the closest Earth and Mars been since 2003 and so this is an excellent time to get it out of telescope and even small telescopes will be able to pick up decent markings. Mars will very rapidly swell towards opposition this week and then it will slowly fade away. So we've got about a month the 27th, where Mars will be sufficiently big to be quite impressive with even the small telescopes. Uh, you may ask, what do I mean by quite impressive? Okay, tell us then. Okay, so under normal circumstances, Mars is uh, quite an uh, 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 undistinguished disk. But at the moment, or with Mars in opposition, it will be about two-thirds the size of Jupiter. So if you point your telescope at Jupiter, you'll be able to see Jupiter is quite a significant disk. Even in small telescopes, Jupiter is quite a, a substantial disk and it's easy to see the bands on it. Mars is going to be about two-thirds the size of Jupiter. Wow. It's slightly bigger than the than Saturn's main body, so that's not the Saturn and the rings, but the actual planet itself inside the rings. It's bigger than that. That's approximately the same size as Venus in a telescope. So if you're looking at Venus at the moment, it's a definite half-moon shape and, and, and quite uh, visible as a disk, or should I should say a half-moon shaped disk. And Mars is going to be about, about the same size as Venus, a little bit smaller than Jupiter and a little bit bigger than Saturn. 
over the coming week and the following weeks, the dust storm will continue to abate and we'll be able to see the markings on Mars. Now, Mars rotates at approximately 24 hours, but not exactly. So if you watch Mars on subsequent nights, you'll see different features move across the face of Mars. So if you just go out and look up and say, look, oh, look, there's Mars, I've seen it, it's big, let's go away now, you'll be missing out on seeing some of the uh, most important features of Mars rotate into into your view. Um, Again, don't expect anything that looks like uh, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, images. You won't see that degree of detail. Fantastic. And now what about this lunar eclipse that's happening? On the 28th in the early morning, and I'm going to emphasize that it's going to be early morning. It's going to, for us, it's uh, getting up at winter at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> actually, a lunar eclipse is a bit painful. But this is an apogee moon. So if you remember the lunar eclipse, the total lunar eclipse we had at the beginning of the year, that was a lunar eclipse of the perigee moon where it's closest to the Earth, and so the moon was quite big. So if you're taking photographs of the apogee moon at this time, you'll notice it's going to be much smaller than the lunar eclipse at the beginning of the year, or at least the moon will look much smaller. Also, because it's it's an apogee eclipse, it's going to be a very long-lasting eclipse. It lasts, in fact, for 104 minutes. Fantastic. It's going to be the longest total lunar eclipse of this century for Australia. It's going to be occurring in the early morning. The United States doesn't get to see it, sadly enough. And Europe will tend to see it as the moon is rising. It's going to be a very deep eclipse. That means that the moon's going to be very, very dark. The lunar eclipse we had earlier this year, the moon had a very dark, coppery colour. This time, the moon will be even darker still. Exactly what colour it will be will depend on dust in the atmosphere and other things. For Australia, in Western Australia, you'll see the entire of the total lunar eclipse from the start to the beginning. In Central Australia, the moon sets after totality is finished. In the eastern states, the moon sets after the greatest eclipse, but before the total eclipse has ended. I'll be definitely going out to have a look at that one, Ian. Again, because the eclipse is so long, we've got a huge chunk of totality. So even though the moon will will, uh, set before totality is finished for the eastern states, you're going to see the moon go into total eclipse and be totally eclipsed uh, for such a long time. That'll be far uh, very worthwhile getting up in the early morning to see it. Thanks, Ian. So a great eclipse for Australia, reasonable for Europe, hopeless for the US, but great for the Middle East and Asia. Now, tell us about this Astro Camp you've been on. Astro Camp, yes, well, being up in Cairns, visiting my father and uh, mother-in-law. Up in Cairns, there's one of my internet strongly mates, Ian McLean. We met physically a couple of years ago when he put on an astronomy demonstration when I was up here, up in Cairns, the International Neuroscience Society. And uh, we've been in contact since. They take people up onto the Atherton Tableland, wheel out there, light bucket and show people the skies under pristine conditions. Ian's got this 12-inch light bucket. It's a Dobsonian reflector and I was allowed to to help him drive it so I was very sharp. 
because I've, I've had equatorial and you're just moving equatorials around you and twist and shove and turn and, and adjust <laughs> with this Watsonian you sort of it's just it's so beautiful just so smooth and once at one stage you let me take over and, uh, and uh, start talking to the other people who come up to have a look through the light bucket and the skies there are just so so beautifully clear and I've got the best view of the lagoon nebula, nebula I've ever seen best view of Obergus Centauri Obergus Centauri for those of you who are not familiar with is a southern uh, globular cluster uh, on the outer reaches of our galaxy it's probably the best globular cluster in the sky massive ball of stars and the and with, with uh, the 12 inch drop saying I could see all the uh, not all but large numbers of the individual stars so through my telescope I see it as a big bright ball of fuzz it was yep. beautiful but through this thing you could see the stars it was incredible and we used to got to see Eta Carina as well Eta Carina is a uh, famous unstable star you may have seen some of the images of the giant lobes of that around Eta Carina itself, but the actual, the, uh, those are the inner lobes, the, the actual nebula itself spreads over much larger areas, and we could, uh, you could see the, the nebula incredibly clearly, and you could see the, the, uh, the dust lanes and the gas, uh, bright gases, absolutely incredible. We had to look at Jupiter, Saturn and Mars, Jupiter, of course, was its usual beautiful self, uh, and uh, we, however, did miss um, uh, one of the uh, Galilean moons popping out of a, out of eclipse um, uh, as we were investigating other parts of the sky. Um, Saturn, I look absolutely, I love Saturn through all forms of telescope, but this was truly incredible. Um, uh, and every, everyone who was there was, was, was blown away by Saturn. And as I said, Mars uh, was a, a quite substantial disk. We could pick out the, um, uh, the South Polar Cap and beginning on tracing as a marking, but it was just big, bright, beautiful. So uh, as well, Ian, Ian has uh, the thing I envy, a green laser pointer. So he's able to trace out the constellations and tell stories about them. Uh, he's also uh, uh, does astronomy um, um, shows for the uh, the Gove Festival up in the, the Northern Territory, um, and so he was able to tell some stories about the uh, about the legends and its uh, and dreamtime stories of the uh, Indigenous peoples from the uh, Northern Territory about out the various constellations which made some, some very interesting uh, stories. But I, I won't tell those stories because they're his stories to tell. If you ever have a chance to go up to Cairns, uh, look up uh, Ian McLean and Night Sky Secrets in, in uh, the Cairns Pier. And uh, if you have a chance, I strongly recommend you uh, go out to the, to the, the Rastro Camp. It's only uh, 45 minutes away from Cairns. So it's, it's really easy to get to, but you've got these wonderful, pristine skies. Uh, you also get, uh, uh, this is not a paid advertisement, by the way, but you also get the uh, dinner up there while you're up there. But uh, the main thing was just these brilliant skies. That sounds so wonderful, and So the message is, wherever you are on this planet... Go and join your local astronomical society. They often have astro tours and astro camps. And a lot of them also 
will loan out telescopes to you so you can have a bit of a try before you buy. But most people do recommend that you grab a dobby after you've looked at the sky with your eyes, got to know the constellations and where the planets lie with, say, a pair of good binoculars before you move on to telescopes. So join your local astronomical society and you'll be taught how to stand on the shoulders of giants. Exactly. So, thank you very much, Ian. Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you. Good night and farewell. No worries. All the best, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Our key news item today is from a press release by SKA Africa. Meerkat radio telescope inaugurated in South Africa reveals clearest view yet of the centre of the Milky Way. Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa, Mr David Mabuza, today officially inaugurated the Meerkat radio telescope. At the launch event, a panorama obtained with the new telescope was unveiled that reveals in extraordinary detail the region surrounding the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way. Fernando Camillo, Chief Scientist of the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory, which built and operates Meerkat in the semi-arid Karoo region of the Northern Cape, said, The centre of the galaxy was an obvious target, unique, visually striking and full of unexplained phenomena, but also notoriously hard to image using radio telescopes because the centre of the Milky Way, 250,000 light-years away from Earth, and lying behind the constellation Sagittarius, the teapot, is forever enshrouded by intervening clouds of gas and dust, making it invisible from Earth using ordinary telescopes. However, infrared, X-ray and in particular radio wavelengths penetrate the obscuring dust and open a window into this distinctive region with its unique 4 million solar mass black hole. Although it's early days with Meerkat and a lot remains to be optimised, we decided to go for it and were stunned by the results. This image is remarkable, said Fahad Youssef Sadeh of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, one of the world's leading experts on the mysterious filamentary structures present near the central black hole but nowhere else in the Milky Way. These long and narrow magnetised filaments were discovered in the 1980s using the VLA, the Very Large Array Radio Telescope in New Mexico, but their origin has remained a mystery. The Meerkat image has such clarity, it shows so many features never seen before, including compact sources associated with some of the filaments that it could provide the key to cracking the code and solving this three-decade riddle. Meerkat. Meerkat is a South African project, and after a decade in design and construction, the precursor to the larger International Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, consists of 64 dishes, each 
13.5 metres in diameter, located on baselines of up to 8 kilometres apart. These dishes have four cryogenic receiver systems operating in different bands of a radio spectrum. The first installed set of receivers operates between frequencies of 900 and 1670 MHz. The vast amounts of data from the 64 dishes gets up to 275 GB per second. They are processed in real time by a correlator, followed by a science processor, both purpose-built. And after further offline analysis, images of a radio sky are generated. Eventually, Meerkat will be incorporated into Phase 1 of the SKA MID telescope. So, well done, SKA. Your huge international team is already producing great science from both the South African and the Australian precursors. Finally, an overdue obituary from the New York Times. Overlooked no more, Beatrice Tinsley, New Zealand astronomer who saw the course of the universe. An insurgent who challenged the academic establishment and became a foremost expert on the ageing of galaxies, was eventually forced to choose between family and career. Since 1851, obituaries in the New York Times have been dominated by white men. In Overlooked, they are adding the stories of remarkable people whose deaths went unreported in the Times at the time. This story by Dennis Overby. In 1967, a very prominent astronomer visited Dallas to give a talk. Before he could speak, however, a young woman named Beatrice Tinsley stood up and told the audience that everything they were about to hear was wrong. Thus began a feud that changed cosmology, the study of the origin and evolution of the universe. On one side was Alan Sandage, arguably the most important astronomer in the world at a time, who was convinced that he was homing in on the fate of the universe, namely, that it was doomed to collapse one distant day a hundred billion years from now. On the other side was an outspoken 26-year-old graduate New Zealander who was saying that Sandage had misread the light of distant galaxies and, with it, the fate of the universe. Sandage was outraged, but history would record that Tinsley won that argument. In the years ahead, before cancer struck her down, in 1981, at the age of 40, Tinsley would become known as the world's leading expert on the ageing and evolution of galaxies, the distant glowing stellar metropolises that are the true citizens of the cosmos. In her work, which the Princeton astronomer James Gunn called a real paradigm change, Galaxies went from being considered isolated blobs of starlight to dynamic, changeable weather centres of energy and radiation, influencing and being influenced by the cosmos around them. 
Tinsley was the spark plug of a new generation of astronomers and physicists who were using new methods and data to wrest the narrative of the universe from their elders. Friends and colleagues recalled her as passionate about her ideas in the universe and also as a feminist hero to the tiny but growing band of women in astronomy. One who had to pay a steep personal price in the form of abandoning her family to follow her stars. Asteroids, mountains, lectureships and awards have since been named for her, but a lifetime of glass ceilings and rejections left Tinsley often feeling unappreciated. She never lost the feeling of fighting the world, said Richard Larson, a Yale astronomer who became a collaborator and close friend. Beatrice Muriel Hill was born in Chester, England on January 27, 1941 and grew up in New Zealand, the middle of three daughters of Jean and Edward Hill. Her father was a clergyman turned politician who became mayor of New Plymouth in New Zealand. Beetle, as her friends and family called her, had a healthy disrespect for authority, which would influence her attitudes towards both science and religion. As she grew up, her two loves were music and mathematics. At the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, she fell under the spell of physics, learning, as quoted in a biographical memoir by her father, to question everything. In 1961, she married a fellow physicist and classmate, Brian Tinsley. A year later, she emerged with a master's degree, but could not find work at Canterbury because her husband worked there. When her husband was recruited to the Southwest Centre for Advanced Studies in Dallas, now the University of Texas at Dallas, she followed but found the situation stultifying. She once caused a minor scandal by refusing to host a faculty tea when it was her turn. In 1964, she enrolled as a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, the only woman in the program, commuting 400 miles each week. It was while simulating the effects of the evolution of billions of stars on the overall appearance of galaxies that she crossed swords with Ellen Sandwich. The fate of the universe was the big question in cosmology. Would the universe keep expanding forever, or would the combined gravity of the galaxies eventually pull everything back together like a handful of rocks tossed back to Earth? Sandwich and others sought to answer that question by looking at how the universe had been expanding in the deep past. He concluded that it was slowing down and would one day fall back together in a big crunch. That was about as momentous a prediction as any scientist could make. But the answer depended on the presumption that certain galaxies, egg-shaped agglomerations known as giant ellipticals, which he was using as cosmic distant markers, so-called standard candles, not changing much over time. Tinsley's work, however, suggested that these galaxies were not so constant, 
that they could dim with age as the stars inside them evolved. Such effects, if true, would undermine Sandage's method and could tip the answer of the fate of the universe to that of expanding forever, existence being a one-way trip into the eternal night. Her dissertation was published, Sandage ignored it, and she got her PhD in 1968. At the same time, she and her husband adopted a boy, Alan, and then later a girl, Teresa. While in Dallas raising the children, she got involved in Planned Parenthood and zero population growth. Meanwhile, by dint of scientific conferences and visits to places like Mount Wilson and Palomar and the University of Maryland, Tinsley continued to pursue her vision of galaxies and cosmology. In 1972, she and three young colleagues, James Gunn and J. Richard Gott of Princeton and James Schramm of the University of Texas at the time, set out to summarise what they thought was growing evidence that the universe would expand forever. We were sort of young Turks wanting to upset the establishment, Shram, who died in 1997, said in an interview. Beatrice was the glue, recalled Gunn, who said that she had done most of the writing for the paper titled An Unbound Universe. The paper had a saucy tone, far from the austere formality that had characterised astronomical pronouncements before. Desist from thrusting out reasoning from your mind because of its disconcerting novelty, the paper began, quoting the Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius. For the mind wants to discover by reasoning what exists in the infinity of space that lies out there beyond the ramparts of this world, it went on. Here then is my first point. In all dimensions alike, on this side or that, upwards or downwards through the universe, there is no end. In other words, the universe would expand forever. There would be no big crunch, no chance of a second act for the Big Bang. After the paper was rejected by the journal Nature, thank you Nature, it was published in the Astrophysical Journal in 1974. A year later, Sandage reached a similar conclusion that the universe was not slowing down enough to ever collapse again. So much for the idea, a sentimental favourite for many astronomers, of a cyclic universe going from big bang to big crunch like a beating heart. The universe has only happened once, Sandage wrote. Tinsley was delighted. It might be bad science to like the universe being open because it feels better, but there is in me a strong delight in that possibility, she wrote in a letter to her father. Further observations a quarter of a century later using distant exploding stars instead of galaxies as milestones, we now know the expansion of the universe is in fact speeding up under the influence of what astronomers call dark energy. Tinsley had been right with a vengeance. 
And we'll finish with a reminder that any listeners can contact us anytime via our AstroFizz WordPress website, via at AstroFizz on Twitter, or the AstroFizz group on Facebook. Or if none of those work for you, you could always email me personally at oscience2006 at gmail.com. And we've got a special treat for you in two weeks' time when we speak with the amazing Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith. So see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.